Hear the word of the Lord from John 4, 43 through 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And kids, it's good to see you. I didn't know we had kids at this church. There's, no, there's hardly any in here, usually on a Sunday. And by the time I get down there, most of them are gone. It's good to know that the, the numbers that, the children, that they give me, these are real people. They're here. Well, if you didn't know, uh, a transformer blew outside our window this morning. Um, and so all of our power is out down at the cottages. So many of our kids are in here with us this morning. So parents, I know this is going to be a little more difficult for you this morning. It'll be a little, maybe a little distracting to listen to me. So I will do my best to make this not boring. Children, hopefully we have some good stuff for you this morning as well. Uh, but we really, we really are glad you're here. And I'm okay if they talk back with me. And if they make a little noise, I'm okay with that. So don't be embarrassed. Don't get too nervous. Um, the, the kids, the Jesus said, let the little kids come to me. So we're totally cool that they are here this morning. And I'm thankful that they're here. Uh, before I get going this morning, I would like Pastor Joshua and his family to stand up. Pastor Joshua leads a large and growing ministry in Kenya. Uh, orphanages over there, drilling wells over there, medical clinics, churches. And he is getting ready to go back uh, next Sunday. And they are training church planters and pastors, about 40 church planters or pastors and Church planters in gospel ministry, the whole, they're going to go through a couple year program, similar to what we do with Porterbrook, to be trained in gospel ministry. And so we want to pray that they have safe travels, and we want to pray that they have just an effective time for the gospel over there in, um, in Kenya. Now, man, Joshua looks like a young spry chicken. And I'm not going to say what his age is, but he's much older than he looks, okay? And I say that because a 16-hour flight one way is no joke. All right, I haven't been over there in probably six or seven, maybe eight years. I can't remember. And the one reason I haven't been over there is that 16-hour flight haunts me, okay? You're talking about you're in a row like this with people on your right and people on your left, and there's nowhere to go, and you're breathing the same air as all of these sick humans, okay? It's not a pleasurable experience. He's about to do it again. The whole family's about to do it again, and we want them to get over there healthy, and to be able to minister. And so we want to pray God's traveling mercies on them and just his blessing upon their ministry as they go about training these pastors in the next month ahead. So if any members, if you guys, if members could, could surround uh, Joshua and his family right now, I'd appreciate you. I know there's, I mean, Gamble, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at, I'm, I know there's most, we're all the way around, but I'm going to ask if you guys get over there and pray for him. Yeah, please, thank you. And I'm going to pray for him from over here. So they're in the back row, so there's nobody behind him. I'm going to pray for him. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for calling Joshua and his family to yourself. We thank you for the life-changing work the gospel has done in them. Thank you for bringing Joshua from Kenya, changing his life, and then sending him back to Kenya to minister. We want the gospel to bear much fruit over there. And we know that, the, that 
us as humans, we're, we're finite and we're frail. And so we can get sick and we can, we can get tired and all these different things. And so we just ask that you would supernaturally strengthen them and make ways in the wilderness for them and rivers in the desert that you would real, really part the Red Sea metaphorically for them on this trip and they would see miracles take place. They would see lives changed. They would see people trained and the gospel, the roots and the, the seed of the gospel would be planted and the roots would go down deep and bring up a harvest 30, 60, even 100 fold. Father, make this be the most profitable trip that they've ever taken. And I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, if you didn't know, we bought a building and we are renovating that building approximately, I don't even know, 25,000 square feet of that building. And we're remodeling nearly every square foot of it. This past week, our stage redesign was completed. Um, some of the balcony got carpeted. My office bookshelves, praise God, are almost complete. So we can move, I can move my office over there hopefully this week. Um, the new atrium ceiling, all of the wood for the new atrium ceiling was stained. Actually, the majority of it. We've got to finish a few little bit pieces of trim this afternoon. And when I say that, most of us are like, oh, stain. Yeah, I've done some stain. Well, 120 sheets of 4 by 8 plywood. That's how much we stained this past, these past weeks. That is a lot of square footage. It's a lot of plywood. It's all going to go up on the ceiling. This week, the electricians are going to get in there and put all their new lights in so then we can put the, the, the wood on the ceiling. Things are moving. God's been gracious to us. All of the toilets, 16 toilets, 16 brand new toilets, they're all installed. Hopefully this afternoon we're getting a new drinking fountain installed. So there's a lot going on over there. And um, yesterday a group of folks started working on the outside that I, listen, if it was up to me, my only goal is to get us in the building, all right? So if you, ha if you can't see the parking lot for the weeds, I don't really care, right? I'm working on the inside of the building, but thank God we've got people that wanted to beautify the exterior of the building as well. And so they're mowing and they're pulling weeds and they're filling holes and doing all kinds of different things yesterday. So we're thankful for all the volunteers that came out yesterday. Um, let me echo what Paul says to the Galatians. He says this, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's about how I feel at the moment. All right. Uh, I am a little weary and I just got to keep persevering. And I know a lot of us the Martins have painted. There have been so many paintings. There's, Jason's been painting. There's been so many people painting. It's like no, some of us don't want to see another door that needs to be painted. All right? But we've got to keep our nose to the grindstone, keep doing what we're doing, and we are going to reap if we don't give up because we are getting really close to our move-in date. If you ask me now, Lord willing, middle of September. That's what we're looking at, middle of September. So we're getting close. Please keep all the workers in your prayers. Um, we don't want any accidents. We don't want any mistakes. We don't want anything that's going to hold us up. Keep me in your prayers. The Lord continue to sustain me. Keep giving financially. Obviously, there's been a lot of surprises, and so we're, we're over budget. But you guys keep giving financially, and we can meet those needs. And we're not worried about it. There's so much going on. We are, if you remember, we are investing not just in our future, but in our children's future. Maybe even our kids' kids' future. I'm praying that this is our kids' future church. This is where they're going to get married, where they're going to raise their kids. And so, man, there, there's a lot of good gospel ministry that's going to happen in this building for the future of our families and also the future of our city. So if you want to volunteer, you don't have, have to ask me anymore if there's something. I love you all. But everybody's first question, is there something for me to do? Yes. If you can breathe and you can pick up a piece of trash, there is something for you to do. There is so much still going on over there. So keep us in your prayer. Keep giving. And yes, if you got some free time, come on over and help us get it done. Now, as I was talking with my staff this week and we were meditating on the season we're in and the season we're coming out of, we were just struck by the Lord's kind providence to us. If you don't know, like I usually, about every six weeks, I rent a Airbnb um, and I do that so I can get away for a day of solitude. And what I do is I, I get away and I, I pray and I read and I think and I study scriptures and I usually plan. And one of the things I do is I usually plan out about a year's worth of sermons in advance. 
Now, I don't write the whole sermons or anything. I just prayerfully consider what books of the Bible um, or what sermon series that I believe God's leading us to study next. And then I kind of outline the sermons. Well, this week I was thinking just how amazing God has been to us over the past couple years. Now, last year, he had us studying the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And those books were a bit of a slog, okay? They were difficult. They weren't easy to understand. They weren't easy to study. They weren't easy to preach. I know from hearing from some of you, they weren't easy to listen to, all right? There was a lot of stuff going on there. But Ezra and Nehemiah were all about building the church, building the people of God and doing construction projects in the midst of a hostile culture, right? Building the church, building the temple, building the city in the midst of people that hate your guts and want to stop the work that you're doing. Now, if it wasn't for our time in Ezra and Nehemiah, I never would have felt convicted to start a building campaign and raise money to purchase our own building. I was not looking for another job. And that's basically what I've had for the past few months, okay? I wasn't sitting at home going, I'm kind of bored. I think I want to, you know, beg for money and then do a construction project on top of my normal job, right? I was actually feeling pretty good and comfortable. But Ezra and Nehemiah led us to do exactly that. And if we hadn't done that work, if we hadn't raised the funds and did the building campaign, we would not have had the down payment when the Hope Church building came available, And now, here we are on the precipice of a lot of new people coming to our church, and we are in the midst, praise God, not of Ezra and Nehemiah, but the Gospel of John. And one of the, Gospel of John is one of the best places for new people to encounter the real Jesus. I don't know if you knew this, last week we had over 40 visitors in our church. Last week. We're not even in our new building yet. We've had over 40 people in our new church, new, new, or 40 people here with us, and we only ex- expect that number to increase as we move into our new building. What blows me away is this sermon series has been planned for over a year. Before we had any idea we'd be getting a new building, and I was thinking last week and talking to my staff about it, and was just blown away by God's providence. And when we say the word providence, we mean that God is governing everything we do. He knew what we needed before we knew what we needed. He knew where he was leading us before we knew where we were going, right? God knew our building was coming available, so he led us to study Ezra and Nehemiah. God knew that a new building would attract a lot of new people, and everyone needs Jesus, so he led us to study the Gospel of John. I'm just like, this is an exciting time to be alive, amen? Amen? I'm, I'm pumped. I don't know if you are, but I'm pumped, right? And so as we get, go into our text this morning, I hope that idea of God's providence informs even this text that we're going to study this morning. Now, let me pray for us and we can get into our text. God, we confess that you are in control of all things, that you know more than we do. You know what we need tomorrow and we don't. God, I, I ask that you would lead us to what we need. And I know that is Jesus. I pray this morning that I am just a man and I don't know what's going on in everybody's life and I am not all-knowing or all-wise and so I need your help. I am prone to make mistakes. I am prone to say things that are incorrect and so I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would help me and that your people would hear you speaking to them and not just me, not just a man. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. Anoint my mind, my vocal cords, anoint their ears to hear. Give us faith this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today's sermon is all about faith. What is faith? Where does it come from? How do I get more of it? How how can I get my faith to grow? Now, I'm gonna say this. Most people that I meet don't understand faith at all. Most people confuse faith with hope. They just think faith, have faith, and that means don't think about things, just have a blind hope that you think things are going to be better tomorrow than they are today, right? Now, listen, in one sense, faith is the most important thing about us because if you lose faith, it becomes really hard to wake up tomorrow. The one thing that's true about every single person that takes their own life is they lose faith. They believe in the moment, 
ne the next moment, an hour from now, things won't be better than they are now. A day from now, things won't be better than they are now. A week from now, things won't be better. And so they believe that, and then they commit suicide. So faith is a very important topic that we need to study and we need to think, of the, think about. Many people also wrongly believe that faith is something like turning your brain off. It's just like not thinking anymore. That faith is opposed to reason. They say things like, oh, don't think about it, just believe. But that's actually the opposite of faith. Faith has to rest on something. I need to have faith in something. And, and therefore, faith is built on thinking. For the Christian, our faith is built on thinking about God. And it grows the more you think about him, the more you come to know him, the more you come to understand him, the more even you commit yourself to him and trust him. And here's where we're going to go today. Faith grows when we have to put our faith in God when things get really difficult. Today we're going to see a father, and more than likely a mother as well, who has to put their faith in God, in Christ, in the midst of a parent's worst nightmare. So it's going to be heavy, but it's also going to be good. Now, I want to remind us as we step into this, in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, in John's first sentences, he begins this gospel by telling us that Jesus was the Word of God, and the Word of God is God. He said that in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Here's the idea. God spoke the whole world into existence. Everything we see came from something we didn't see, and that's the Word of God. Jesus is that word. <clears throat> all things, John says, all things were made through him, that's through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So if you go all the way back to the beginning, you're going to find Jesus speaking the universe into existence. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Somebody say all things. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the God man. What does that mean? He has always been God. God is a spirit. But in the plan of God, Jesus the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, put on flesh in his mother's womb and moved into our universe, moved into our world. He added to his divinity. He's always been God. He added to that divinity his humanity and became a man. Now, I say all of that because in our day and age, many, even Christian people, get embarrassed by the supernatural claims of Christianity, get embarrassed by miracles, get embarrassed by the idea of spirits and things that we can't see and Jesus Christ being able to walk on water. We kind of like look away from that and get embarrassed by it. And I don't think we should. Most of us have grown up in a society that has rejected God and pushed away from God, especially if you were raised in public schools and we've become enamored and indoctrinated by the science. I say the science because it's not just science, it's the science. And what the science um, does is it tries to say everything you see has natural causes. Everything is just, na has natural causes. Now I'm going to ask you this morning, like, where are you at with all, do you believe God is supernatural? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe God can speak and heal a person? Do you believe that? Now, good. That's what I'm talking about. Excellent. Awesome. Yes. Out of the mouth of babes. There we go. Yes. And listen, here's what I'm going to say. I think you should, but in one sense of the word, you are a miracle. In one sense of the word, everything we see is a miracle. See, G.K. Chesterton, he has this wonderful chapter in his book called Orthodoxy called The Ethics of Elfland. And in it, 
he just blasts this anti-supernatural worldview that has often been called scientific materialism. And scientific materialism is this. This is all that exists, just stuff. There's nothing behind it. There's no magic. There's no supernatural. There's no mysterious. It's all just cause and effect. He says, when we ask, why does an apple fall to the ground? Some materialistic scientific persons tells us, well, it's gravity. Now, many of us, not all of us, but I know there's some of you that want to go farther than this, but many of us, when we hear that, oh, it's gravity, we say, oh, okay, cool. And then we just stop thinking about it. We just move on, right? I got food to eat and I got sports to play and I got stuff to do. So I'll just take this guy's word for it. Oh, why does an apple fall from a tree? Oh, it's gravity. Cool. I'll put that in my pocket. The next time somebody asks me, I'll use that term, right? Well, the problem is, how many of us know what the heck gravity is? Why is there such a thing as gravity? Where does gravity even come from? And the more you study it, and the more you research it, and you can go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, what you realize is we still don't know where gravity comes from. The more you look into it, the more mysterious it becomes. There's always another level. You can keep going farther and farther and farther back. Well, this drives G.K. Chesterton nuts. Because it ta- he says this scientific materialistic worldview that says, oh, just cause and effect. It takes all the wonder and the mystery out of the real world. So Chesterton prefers to say it's magic. Okay, now, now when he says magic, he's not trying to convey some kind of occultic reality. But rather, he's using the word magic because it has a mystery to it. It has a wonder to it. He has this great line in the chapter. He says this, quote, The only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are the terms used in the fairy books. Charm, spell, enchantment. He says this, They express the arbitrariness of the facts. So the facts are real. Science accurately describes the facts, but also it's mystery. So science only talks about the facts, not the mystery. He likes spell, enchantment, these types of words, because yes, the facts are true, but they also have the mystery behind the facts. He says this, a tree grows fruit because it is a magic tree. Water runs downhill because it's bewitched. The sun shines because it's bewitched. Now, I want you to think about this. We lose our wonder many times, right? An apple tree eats sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide and turns it into an apple. We eat an apple and turn it into energy. How does that happen? Now, you can say big words like photosynthesis and digestion, but that does not mean you have any idea what you're talking about. An apple tree eats sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water and turns it into this beautiful, tasty thing called an apple, right? There's mystery, there's wonder, there's beauty there. If these things, we say, oh, there's just natural laws. There's laws of the universe. Okay, if there's laws in the universe or laws of nature, who wrote them? If we find in nature any laws, there must be a lawgiver. Here's what I want you to see this morning, and I pray that you would open up your eyes to see the world as it really is. An apple tree makes apples because all the way back, Jesus told it to. And yeah, it's magic. Water runs downhill because all the way back, Jesus told it to, and yeah, it's magic. An egg turns into a chicken, which then lays eggs because all the way back, Jesus told it to, and yeah, that's magic. Listen, science is good. We want to dig down in the world the way that God gave it to us and discover 
the laws and discover what God put in it and all the meaning and all, the, all that. But a scientific materialist worldview takes God's beautiful and mysterious world and makes it boring. And here's, what, here's the temptation. This is, I'm guilty of this temptation. I'm a practical guy. I want to I know stuff that can help me today, raise my kids, right? Be less tired, get more done, right? Wake up at 5 a.m. and just feel like a spry chicken. That's what I want to do. How can I do that? Is it an ice bath? Is it, is it heat? Is, I want, I want, I'm very practical, right, in, in the way that I'm thinking. So what I can do is go, why does an apple fall from a tree? Gravity. Okay, cool. I'm done with that. Just shut my brain off and stop thinking about that, right? That's not what faith does. Faith takes those facts and keeps asking questions and keeps learning and keeps studying and keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Ask a scientist, a materialist scientist, not any scientist, but not a Christian scientist, but a scientific materialist, what is fire? Here's the definition. Fire is the visible effect of the process of combustion, a special type of chemical reaction. Boring. If that's all fire is, you've shut off your brain. If that's all fire is, you've stopped thinking about it. Ask an artist. Ask a poet. Dare I say, ask a theologian. Listen, I don't care how many times you've seen a fire, sit sit by it and stare at it again. Sit by your little fire pit and watch it. Watch a dead tree turn into light and give off heat and then fly away. That's what a fire is. You're taking a dead tree, that apple, that magic apple tree, you're chopping it up, you're putting it in, it's turning into light and heat and then it just drifts off. Where's it going? I don't know. Why does fire do that? We should ask ourselves, why does fire do that? And why do I love looking at it and roasting things over it? <laughs> because Jesus told it to and it's magic. What we are doing here isn't turning off our brains. It's actually turning them back on. Faith comes from thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about God, about how he made the world, about who we are. And you, my friend, think about who you are. You are a never-ending soul in a body. Your physical body is a miracle spoken into existence by Jesus himself. He made you with a word. Science says you are a complex system, a complex network of systems. Okay, complex network of systems. Check. Who fired up the system? Where does the spark of life come from? Where does the energy come from? Where's the po- if I'm a network of systems like my computer is, where's the power button? And where do I plug into? Think about it. When John says Jesus is the light and life of men, that's what he means. He's the power source. He's the one who holds the spark of life. You exist because he fired you up and turned you on. This morning, I'm over there preaching. I'm right, or not preaching. I'm preparing to preach. I'm typing the last little bit of my sermon. I've been working a lot, so I get here early. I'm typing in. I'm finishing touches. Power goes out. My whole system is now useless. And I do everything digitally. So this iPad is blank. My computer, I'm like, oh, no. Right? You guys are coming. I got to have something for you. So I got to rush down here and plug it into a different power source. When John says Jesus is the light and life of men, he means we have no eternal life. We have no eternal power without plugging ourselves into him. Jesus knit you together in your mother's womb. And if you are ever going to understand life, if you're ever going to understand eternal life and the good life and the blessed life, If you're ever going to understand our world, you're going to have to plug yourself into him. 
You're going to have to meet him in a life-changing way. And then when you do, here's the question that will come with you the rest of your life. Will I trust him in all things? Will I trust in his word more than I trust in my eyes, more than I trust in my feelings, more than I trust in my desires? And what our text says today, the true test of faith is can you trust Jesus when life gets really, really, really difficult? And if you can, your faith will flourish and your faith will grow and it will produce in you a, a harvest that you never thought possible. That's where we're going. Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. And we're going to start today in verse 43. Picking up right where we left off last week. After the two days, Jesus had spent two days in Samaria. He departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, I want you to remember here, Jesus is leaving Samaria and going back to Galilee. Do you remember what kind of welcome Jesus got in Samaria? The woman had met him at the well, and he had spoken into her life. She believed him. She got her life changed. She went back to all of her Samaritan friends, told them about Jesus, they trusted her word, came and met Jesus. Then they met the real Jesus and believed in his word. And then their lives got changed. In other words, in Samaria, the place where Jesus should not be welcomed, he met people whose faith was active and ready to believe in him. Now, why is John showing us this? Because everywhere Jesus goes, when the people should receive him, his own people, the Jews, the Judeans, right? The, the Galileans, his own folks, they should receive him. They don't. What we're going to find is the Galileans and the Judeans, they have what we call eye faith. They treat Jesus like a vending machine. They treat Jesus like a miracle worker. They treat Jesus like a genie in a bottle. Oh, Jesus is the new sideshow clown, right, at the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Oh, right, I want to see the bearded lady. Bring her out. Right? Oh, I want to see the little people. Bring them out. Oh, I want to see the trapeze artists. Bring them out. I want to see Jesus do signs and wonders. Bring them out. That's how they treat Jesus. Now, the reality is we often treat Jesus the same way. We have a what have you done for me lately type of attitude when it comes to Jesus. And Jesus says, a faith that is only I faith. In other words, Jesus spoke this world into existence. Jesus gave us mysterious things like fire and gravity and all these different things. Jesus gave us the spark of life. Jesus woke us up this morning, right? We didn't fly off into the universe, right? He did all of that and we wake up going, okay, but what are you going to do for me now? What about today? I still don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. What about that, Jesus? My back still hurts, Jesus. It's treating Jesus like a genie in a bottle. It's saying to Jesus, if you do this for me right now, then I'll give you my life. Then I'll obey you. How many, we've all done this. We've prayed the prayer. Make that person fall in love with me, Jesus. Right? Give me the job, Jesus. Heal my body, Jesus. Help me pass the test, Jesus, even though I didn't study for the test, Jesus. Jesus, I, I want you to mysteriously drop all the right answers into my mind right now. <laughs> and then when, when you do it and I ace the test, I'll tell everybody, it was a miracle. Jesus did it. I'll testify. It's treating Jesus like a vending machine. So the Galileans here, Here's the key. They welcome Jesus, but they're only welcoming him because they want him to do another miracle like he did at the wedding in Cana. That's why Jesus says, I'm a prophet is never accepted in his own hometown. And that's why you get all the attention about the feast and the miracles. Look at verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. See, where people saw him do stuff. Now here's where the story turns. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son 
was ill. Here we meet an official. This guy was most likely a Gentile. That means an outsider. That means somebody who shouldn't accept Jesus, who shouldn't put their faith in Jesus. He was a Gentile official, more than likely a governmental official who worked for Herod Antipas. His boss was awful. And what we learn about this guy, so what does it mean that he's a Gentile? It means he still worshiped the pantheon. He worshiped all the Greek gods. So in his home, he would have little idols on his fireplace. He would have his little idols and he would worship all the different gods to get a good life. Oh, I'm sick. I'm going to worship this God. Oh, I need a good harvest. I need to worship this God. Oh, I need to travel. I'm going to worship this God. All the gods were in control of different things of the universe. And so this person worshiped all the gods. Okay. And he worked for Herod Antipas. Well, here's the problem. He's got a son that is grievously ill. Now this is a parent's worst nightmare. It's a parent's worst nightmare to have your child sick and you can't do anything about it. Look what happens in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he, his son, was at the point of death. Now, here's what's going on. Jesus had done some miracles and word was getting out. This guy can do amazing things. This guy can do signs and wonders and miracles. And now this pagan who worships any God that he, he know, he, I tried everything and my son's not getting better. I brought him to all the doctors. I brought him all to all the priests. I've prayed to all the other gods and nobody's healing my son. I'm willing to do anything to heal him. To get him healed. So he hears the whispers of that, about this Judean miracle worker that's in Galilee. And so he goes to meet Jesus. Now this is a two-day walk to meet Jesus. And this guy, is, he's on his last leg here. He's willing to do anything to go and meet Jesus. And he walks down there. And we learn in the next verse that his son was at the point of death. So this dad... No, I, no, no, no. I want to say this dad being a good dad, but I know there's a good mom behind that too. Mom, mom is at home saying, you got to figure something out. We've tried that doctor and that doctor and that doctor and that priest and that priest. I've been on WebMD for a week. I've tried all the home remedies, right? We've got the essential oils in the corner. They're not working, right? I got all the herbs and everything that everybody told me to get. They're not working. I've done everything your mom said to do. None of it works. I've been on Facebook. I, 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 I pulled the crowd, right? We've tried it all and nothing works. You got to figure something out. And this dad takes that responsibility on himself, takes that duty on himself, takes off work, has to talk to Herod Antipas. Hey, I've got to go. My son's more important than my job. I've got to go find, some, find a way to get him healed. And I'm going to go meet this man named Jesus and see if this Jesus can do anything for us. Now here's the reality. This man, only, his only reason for coming to Jesus was to get his son healed. That's it. Okay, that's the only, look at verse 48. Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now look, here's, here's a key piece. So Jesus says to him, unless you if you have a, a study Bible or, or, or a decent Bible, and I'll probably have a little one next to that you, and that's to show you that that you is plural. So Jesus is speaking to this man, but he's also speaking to the crowds. Why? Because everyone in Galilee only has eye faith. They only are there to see signs and wonders and miracles. Okay? And he says this, unless you see basically signs and wonders, none of you are, are going to believe. You're treating me like a sideshow. Think about this. Unless there, this man is coming to him and all of these people are here saying basically, unless Jesus does this or that, I won't believe in him. Give us some more bread. Oh man, that wine he made at Cana. I came for that wine, man. Did you take that wine? I know it ran out last week. We need some more of that wine. Jesus, I need some more of that vintage stuff. Could you do that for me? These people are here to see a miracle. They need something more. How many of us come to Jesus like that? 
We're coming here this morning like that. That you are currently sitting in your seat on a planet made of mostly lava that is spinning a thousand miles an hour and yet you are not flying into space. Is that not magic enough for you? Is that not a great enough sign and wonder for you? What else do you need? Do you need him to, you need him right now to prove that he really cares for you, that he really loves you, that he's really there, that he's really behind all of this? By doing what? What do you need Jesus to do in this moment? What are you asking him for? What are you begging him for? Well, this man, he's saying, my son, this man, think about it. This man isn't at home contemplating the meaning of life. This guy isn't like desperate need of salvation. Doesn't know he's in desperate need of salvation. He's not thinking about where I'm going to live forever somewhere. Who's going to forgive me of my sins? How am I going to be made right with God? This man isn't thinking about the really important things of life. He's only thinking about the practical needs in front of him. My son is about to die. And yes, they are meaningful and deep. And again, it's a parent's worst nightmare. But he's coming to Jesus for one reason and only, to get his physical needs met right now. And Jesus says, here's the problem with that. If I do that for you today, and that's all you get, you're going to ask me for something else tomorrow. How many of us have got the girl? And then afterwards, we're praying for, oh Lord, fix the girl. Change the girl. Right? Like the prayer just becomes something different. Like we always have these needs that we're bringing to God and we become like the people in the, in, the, in the desert who wanted to get out of Pharaoh. They want to get out of captivity and as soon as they get out into captivity, what do they do? They start complaining about the accommodations. Man, I remember back in Egypt. We had meat pots back in Egypt. Yeah, and you also had slave masters. Remember that? They don't. They forget it. Verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, here's the request. Jesus, I'm, gonna, I'm treating, he's treating him just like every other physician he's ever met in his life. What do you need the physician to do? You need him to come and see your child. Come and see. Or now, nowadays, we take them to the physician, right? You don't want to call the, the physician and say, hey, something's going on. My son's at the point of death. And he goes, ah, oh, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. No, you need to see my child before you can make that diagnosis. Who are you to know through the, through the phone what's going on with my child? The only way people get healed is if a doctor sees them and does something to them, right? Put the lotion on. Take the medicine. Have the surgery. This man knows there's something that Jesus must do. And so he's asking Jesus, come to my town. Take this two-day detour with me to see my son and heal my son. So this, we see right away here that this man is not offended by Jesus' confrontational words about only wanting a sign. He pushes through them. He is undeterred and begs Jesus to come to his house. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him. Now I want you to see the power in those words. Jesus said to him. Jesus spoke into nothing and said, let there be light. Jesus spoke into nothing and created everything. Jesus said to this man, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Here's the test, folks. Will you believe Jesus' words? Can you take Jesus at his word or will you demand a sign to prove that he can really do what he said? This man shows his faith because what he does is he obeys Jesus. Can you imagine your wife says to you, go meet this Jesus, bring him back here so he meets our son. And then you go and Jesus says, go, your son is healed. And you just take off back home. Okay, cool. He said it. Nobody else is, has the power to say something like that and change him. And then you come walking back home and the wife comes out to meet you. Where, where's Jesus? Where's the guy? Oh, he said he's fine. Immediately, she's thinking, are you an idiot? 
You didn't get a prescription? You, he didn't tell you what to put on it? He didn't tell you what's, he just, sa- he just says to you, he's healed and now you believe him? Can you imagine husbands walking back to describe this to your wife? And your son is about to die. I mean, this is the grave seriousness of the situation. Oh yeah, I just met this guy and this guy said, oh yeah, he's fine. So I just headed back home. Think about it here. He's a couple days journey away from home. So the father's got this dilemma on his hands. Does he believe Jesus and actually go home without Jesus doing anything? Or does he say, well, wait a second. I want you to come with me because if he isn't really healed, then what? Then my son's going to die. And I've never seen anybody healed without somebody actually showing up and doing something. So I want you to come with me to protect me from my wife, all right? I want you to come with me so you can convince her, right? Like you can convince her that you really are the son of God and can do things like this. Or am I going to choose to believe my fears, my doubts, my worry? See, people think about, oh, faith is shutting your brain off. Faith isn't shutting your brain off brain off. Faith is choosing who to believe. When I'm doubting, I'm believing my flesh. I'm I'm believing my own fears. I'm believing these things. I'm putting my faith in my fears. But when I'm putting my faith in Christ and I'm trusting in Christ, he leads me through my doubts. He leads me through my fears. And look what he says here. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, I know, my theology tells me that God had to do something in this man's mind and in this man's heart for him to believe him. But this pagan man goes, okay, and believes the word of Jesus and then goes home. His faith is evidenced not just by the information that he believes, but by his action. He obeys Jesus. He goes home. He doesn't keep nagging Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus for another Bible study. He doesn't show me, show me five more verses that that tell me that my son's going to be healed. I need more evidence. No, when Jesus says, go, your son's going to be healed, he shows his faith by trusting the words of Christ and then walking back home. We evidence our faith by obeying Jesus in the midst of uncertainty in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. And look what happens. Now, before I get there, I love this because at this point, this man, I don't think this man is a Christian yet. He might be, I don't know. Jesus has probably one of the gods on his mantelpiece now. Jesus is a miracle worker. But for some reason, he sees the authority in Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus speaks to him and that faith comes to him and he puts his faith in him. And Christ tells him, go home, everything's fine. And he believes it. He has a very simple faith. This is what faith is. Do I trust the word of Christ more than I trust my circumstances? More than I trust my feelings? Verse 51. As he was going down, so the man left, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Now, I think there's probably two really cool things going on right now. Number one is his wife is at home going, he got better. He got better. We don't, we don't even need Jesus. We don't need the doctor to come. My infusion thing worked. Oh, my little Glade plug-in that was smelling good smellies in the air. It healed him. My son, oh, wow, one of the gods finally showed up and did it. But the father knows better. The father says this. So he asked them the hour. Hey, son's better? Praise God. What time did it happen? And they say that, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever, at one o'clock, the fever left him at one o'clock. And what does he say? Now listen, faith comes by thinking. This man didn't go, 
He's better? Cool. Shut the brain off. Receive another thing from the vending machine. You rub the lamp. I don't know which lamp. A bunch of different lamps. We tried them all, and now my son got healed. Wow, the universe is really kind of benevolent. Oh, karma. I must have did something good. No, no, no. He goes deeper. He researches. He thinks. He, tur- he puts on the thinking cap and goes, what time did he get better? They say one o'clock. He says this. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And look, and he himself believed. Now he's all in. He had a little bit of eye faith in the beginning and now he's got full heart trusting faith. Now he believes this is not just one of the gods. This is not just a miracle worker, a sign and wonder guy. This is the son of God. This is the one who spoke the whole universe into existence. This man comes to faith and look what he does. And he himself believed and all his household. Last week we saw a Samaritan woman get faith and come to Christ, goes and tells everybody who will listen. This man comes to faith and what does he do? He takes his faith home. He goes home, and I wish we had the whole story. He goes home, and he probably takes all those idols off the mantelpiece. And he probably says, listen, all the gods we've been worshiping our whole life, they're all liars. They're demigods. They're failures. They couldn't heal our son. But I went and met this man who is God in the flesh, and he healed our son with a word. Honey, No, no, no. At one o'clock, he said, your son will be healed. And you told me at one o'clock, he got better. This guy did it with the word. Get rid of your idols. Get rid of the false gods. There is no other God. There is only one. And his name is Jesus Christ. This is what men do. This is what spiritual leadership looks like. We men take responsibility for the spiritual climate of our home. We lay our needs down. We have to take off work if we got to. We pick up the responsibilities of duty. And yes, duty is a good thing. We do the hard things. When our, even when, our, when our, our, our spouse loses faith and gets worried and anxious, we keep the faith and we lead her to the faith. We lead our family to Jesus. Yes, we provide for our family. Yes, we protect our family. But above all, we are called to lead our family to faith in Jesus Christ. But what does that look like? It's very simple, actually. It looks like knowing Jesus, believing Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and obeying the words of Jesus. It means to extrapolate from that, fathers, that you make the Sunday gathering a priority for you and your family. That Jesus is more important than your baseball schedule. That Jesus is more important than your dance schedule. That Jesus is more important than whatever sports or recital or all these different things. Jesus is more important and, and everybody in your household knows it's not a question whether we go to church on Sunday morning. Yes, we're Christians. That's what we're going to do. And men, you're leading that out and not looking to your spouse to lead that out. You're called to be the spiritual leader of your home. It means that you... Make Christian community and the Christian family a priority. That you have a group of brothers and sisters in Christ that are living together in such a way that you're following Jesus together because Christianity is a team sport and we're called by God to bear each other's burdens, to pray with one another, to speak the word of God to one another, to serve the city and be on mission with one another. And that happens in a missional community. You cannot be a Christian on your own unless you're on an island. You need brother. You're in a family. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. Men, it means you probably need a small cadre of other men that come around you. Ladies, a small cadre of other ladies that come around you. We here at Sacred City call those fight clubs. It's where we gather together and we fight the fight of faith together. We help to encourage one another towards godliness. 
faith comes from hearing the word of God, thinking about it, trusting in who Jesus is, and then making a commitment to him to follow him in all of life. Saying, Jesus, I will trust you. Some of you here today, I pray that you make this, that you, you say this today. Jesus, I will trust you. Jesus, I will follow you. Jesus, I believe your words more than I believe my own feelings, my own fears, my own anxieties. I'm going to shape my life around you and your mission. And then here it is. Listen, when difficulties come and they come for us all, our faith will grow the most when it's challenged like this father's was. Faith grows the most in difficult seasons, in the desert, in pain and suffering. And we keep the faith and trust in God that he's working things together for our good when we don't even know. Can I, can I just, can you see this? This man thought his greatest need was for his son to be healed. And the whole family was going to hell. Men, ladies, sometimes we think our greatest need is my bank account is on, my bank account is on E here, right? I don't know if I can pay the bills. My greatest need is I need a spouse. My greatest need is I need a physical healing. No, your greatest need is Jesus. Your greatest need is redemption. Your greatest need is salvation. Your greatest need is eternal life. And God is providentially ordering all the circumstances of your life, even sickness, even death, even pain, for your spiritual good. How can I trust Jesus in the midst of pain, death, difficulties in my marriage, desert seasons. How can I trust Jesus? Well, Jesus shows us, and this is my conclusion here. At the end of Jesus' life, he encountered terrible and unjust, totally unjust suffering. He was wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and brutally crucified, even though he had done nothing wrong. And yet, in the midst of that, Jesus was able to trust in God's plan and say, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus entrusted himself to God and God, look at this, used the death and resurrection of the Son of God to save the world from sin. Do you know what that means? Jesus' worst day becomes our greatest day. The darkest day in human History brings about our life and redemption and eternal life and joy. So what do we have to do? When we're walking through these difficulties, we've got, we hear the cancer diagnosis, we have the surgery coming up, we wake, in the middle, wake up in the middle of the night and all the anxieties of life are swirling around in us. What do I do? Go back to the cross and think on it. Fill your mind with it. Go deeper into it. There's mystery there. There's wonder there. There's magic there. And you can find strength for your soul there because if God can flip the script on the darkest day of human history, he can flip the script on yours. That is better than your shouting, I promise. That will sustain you through the deepest, darkest moments of your life. And it's the only thing that will. It's the only thing that will. This is why every single week we participate in it. Hear that word. We participate in it. We come to the table of the Lord and he feeds us his body and his blood. This not only reminds us in our minds of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's a participation we think about it. We participate in it. We eat it and drink it. And what God does is as we're walking through the darkest seasons of our life, the valleys of the shadow of death, God matures our faith. God sends our roots down deeper. He enables us to trust him in greater and greater and greater measures. He feeds us. He meets us here in a spiritual way every single week. And now I'll say it. It's magic. Let me pray for us. 
Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the reality that you're behind all things, ordering all things, structuring all things, that all things were created through Jesus' word and he's holding all things together and they're all things for his glory, even our darkest days. And I pray that you would strengthen us. Give us faith like this man here. Faith that begins with eye faith, but then matures into living faith. And I pray that the men in this room would take upon the mantle of spiritual leadership and they would lead their family to Jesus Christ in greater and greater ways and measures. I pray for the children in this room. Give them faith. Mature that faith. Give them a simple faith that takes you at your word and trust in you. But let that simple faith become a deep-seated faith that will keep them and be the anchor that holds them in the darkest storms of their life. So we come to your table You broke the bread and said, this is my body. You took the wine. You said, this is the cup of my blood. We're commanded to eat it and drink it as often as we come together. We are eating it and drinking it and participating in it. And you are doing something spiritual in us that we can't even understand. Give us the faith to eat this meal rightly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.